Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris Alfalt. I'm deputy editor of film and TV craft at IndieWire. And my guest today is Garrett Bradley, who made The Incredible Time, uh, which you can now see on Amazon Prime. In fact, you might want to do that be, uh, before listening to this episode. Incredible movie. And I'm really excited because it's one of this is one of the first of six episodes where we'll focus entirely on documentaries, which this year, more than any, features some of the best and rarely discussed filmmaking of the year. And you can also check out IndieWire because there'll be a video essay accompanying each of these podcasts. I'm going to try and do a better job getting these up on Twitter as well. And you can find, um, I created a handle at Toolkit Podcast. And today's episode is brought to you by one of those incredible documentaries we'll be talking about this season, the Apple original film Boy State, which is this political coming of age story and journey into the heart of American democracy through an annual rite of passage in which a thousand teenage boys from across Texas come together to build a representative government from the ground up. And side note, I, I did Boy State when I was 17, and if you don't know about it, you're in for a crazy ride with this film. And it's for your consideration, best documentary feature, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. You know, my sense, and I think I saw you say this somewhere, that you don't necessarily think of Fox or, in general, I guess the people that you that you film as necessarily subjects. And it seems to me that um, that might be an interesting place to start this conversation, your relationship with her and and kind of the process to eventually start getting to the point that you're you're ready to make a movie with her. Yeah, um... I mean, I don't even know, I guess when you really think about the the word subject or, or like, what does that mean? It's like a topic, you know? Um, and then when you think about access, you know, access becomes this weird replacement for just in a life experience, you know? And I think it goes back a little bit to probably um, the history of documentary filmmaking, which uh, which has its problems, <laughs> you know, certainly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and I, I guess I just believe really firmly that we're still so early into the process as filmmakers and as, as, um, as documentarians or however one wants to qualify themselves that we don't need to have scientific words like that, you know, that ultimately I believe we're like energy workers, you know, we are. And I think to your question, it's like, I, I don't look at anybody as a subject because I'm not looking for a subject. I'm, I'm, my work has come out of real relationships with people that I have, um, who have been on board to do something together, you know, to collaborate. And so, um, the journey that we're on is a collective journey. Um, and it isn't, um, it isn't really anything above or below that. Collaborator might be a better word to certain, and, in a way right yeah yeah and I don't know why like I think maybe sometimes like collaborator uh, that then someone sort of people have there there's an issue with that because there it, it implies that one is sort of relinquishing control and relinquishing control means that maybe then there's there isn't the sort of um, required amount of objectivity Hmm. that exists in the process kind of the journalism um, aspect too that docs sometimes get ha get uh, hamstrung with is that cloak of journalism right and if you right. you don't collaborate right. with the subject of someone that you're reporting on rather than making a piece of art right which is a funny idea because to a certain extent i mean i don't i don't see making films with people as being any different than having just sort of basic respect for 
an individual, right? Like when you get into an elevator with someone or when you, or, or frankly, when you think about your friendships, you have boundaries with those people. Um, but there's still a level of intimacy and, and transparency that should exist in order for it to be a healthy relationship. And I don't think that's any different when you're making films. My assumption just in watching your work um, is that this isn't a case where you're just filming on the heels following someone. Um, so much of the choices here are seem so specific. I'm is it, We were talking about your relationship with Fox. Was this something where you spent a lot of time with her and figured out from a filmmaking standpoint what what it was that you wanted to to film and where and what you wanted to film because I, I want to get into the choices but I just have to assume this isn't something of just like being on the heels of someone kind of verte style yeah I mean I try as much as possible to um yeah spend time with people before you introduce a camera um and I think that the reason for that is because Fox, you know, and, and none of the family really were had had issues with the camera. It was actually, I think, more for me to understand how does one inhabit space? How does one move through space? Like what is the and what is their daily routine? And how can I then kind of curate um, moments based on that knowledge? Um, and I think in, you know, in some instances, it's been it's actually showed or, or been able to illustrate more of a truth in a scenario than uh, than anything else. So, I mean, a good example, I think, in my mind would be even with Alone, the short film, which I really see as being a sister film to Time. Um, you know, I knew Lon didn't have a great relationship with her mom at that time. I knew that the conversation that they were about to have was going to be a really difficult one. Um, and so having it just be a scene that was primarily audio, that wasn't something that granted us the ability to see the two of them have the conversation, I think actually allowed viewers to, to, to understand the moment better, right? That we could actually hear in her mother's voice that there was love there. Um, whereas I think seeing it, you would have probably responded more quickly to uh, the more superficial elements of, of anger, you know? So I want, we'll eventually get to what the film became, which I know it went from short to feature and, and, and the DV footage and stuff. But I'm wondering if we could kind of go back to the very beginning. Um, you know, what was it? I, I, I saw somewhere that you had spent a lot of time and also learned Fox's routine and then decide which parts you were going to film. What was that in terms of those, that curated aspect of the story? What was the original intention of this short? Um I, I know some of that's still in there, but it was it was a smaller in scope to a certain degree of, of what you were trying to capture, right? Yeah, so the short, um, you know, in, the sh in my mind, it was also a short because I wasn't aware of 100 hours of incredible family archive that had barely existed. Um, and I think, you know, when you're working, when you're making a documentary, for me, I'm it's, it's not about the ending, right? You really, it's really a practice in being present and being in the present. Um, and I had to ask myself on a daily basis, you know, if I have to stop filming tomorrow, what is it that I will be saying with the footage that I have this far? Um, and, you know, the, I should backtrack in saying that also the really, truly the first step is to ask the people that you're working with, why do we want to do this? Why do you want to make this film? What do you want to say with it? How is it going to help 
uh, you or an individual or a group of people in the world. And um, and Fox's response and the family's response at that time was, and, and remains to be, that their story is the story of 2.3 million other Americans um, and might offer a level of hope, a level of guidance, right? Um, in, in a multitude of ways, which maybe we can talk about later. But um, And so I then, my job as a filmmaker is to, I felt, to translate that into a visual space, into a space that, that I can imagine and see. Um, and so the way to do that was to focus on daily life, to focus on routine and ritual, um, and hopefully to be able to say that there is no way to avoid the system, that there is, there is nothing, that the system unequivocally embeds itself in daily life, um, and that you cannot turn it, on, turn it on or turn it off. And I think we got really lucky that all these other elements started to build on themselves that essentially helped not only make a longer film, um, but also could say much more than that. When we think about the issues surrounding in- incarceration, or at least when I do, um, and, and the injustice, um, it's it's interesting, and, and in particular, if I think about you know a, a story of um, love and a family being separated by by prison walls, I, I think in very like kind of um, acute like injustice, very um, kind of conflict there and what's interesting is it seems it's like a lot of what you were trying to capture here in the bureaucracy is it's it's impersonal aspects it's 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 lack of concern it's slowness the waiting and just that like it, it uh, one almost gets the sense of uh of of how it wears you down and 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 kind of defines you as a person it seems like that seems like a that aspect of it, you think it, she's been fighting for so long and she's become this activist and it feels like, feels like such this active thing, but it feels like what you were trying to capture was this slow wearing down of the bureaucracy. At least that's what the, the filmmaking to a certain degree captured for me. Yeah, certainly. And I think that that's also what helps the film hopefully be something that's universal, you know? And when we think about the fact that there's, you know, again, 2.3 million people that are incarcerated, that means there's if not double, triple that number that are also serving time on the outside, that are also in exactly the same situation that Fox and her family were in, in terms of how they have to maneuver through the bureaucracy. And so much of the bureaucracy, as you were saying, is sort of intended to break you down, to wear you down, right? Um, And I think that that is also where, you know, Part, the question of hope, which I think can be very vague when say, well, I want the film to offer hope. Well, what does that actually mean? And I think what we're talking about is that um, one's persistence, one's ability to hold on to their individuality within the system um, is a form of resistance, you know, um, and, and is also a form of hope, you know. Um, and I think that that is so much of what Fox was able to do what her sons were able to do, what Robert, even from the inside, was able to do. Um, And it's also the great tragedy of this chronic problem um, that is affecting the majority of our country. Can we talk about, in in context of this, the choices that you made, um, both in terms of what to film and also how you filmed it? I mean, it has such a distinct, there's such, once again, when people see this film, it has such distinct choices in terms of the framing. It's very tight. Um, it's um, the, 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 in, in what you're choosing to film and which aspects of their lives um, in terms of the present day, obviously we'll get into 
the editing and the and the DV stuff, which is adds a whole different layer. But I'm just talking about those choices when you were thinking of making this short and trying capturing this this slice of her life. What were what were some of those choices that you're making in terms of what to film and how to film it? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think we spent a lot of time with Fox at work. Um, and, you know, she she was working um, in the car industry and in, uh, used car sales industry, which is a very, I think, an amazing kind of um, industry for someone like Fox to be working in because you're dealing with so many different walks of life. It's so much about your your the interpersonal relationships with strangers, <laughs> you know, with people Um there's certainly uh, an element of performance and sort of presentation that's required um, in that job. And um, and so that felt to me first like a really natural place to be um, because it's how one presents themselves to the public. It's how one interacts with the public. Um, and it also, I think, helped us to really, again, fully understand that in between the work, she was working on the personal, right? She was, there wasn't a single moment that wasn't spent um, not uh, fighting for Robert's release. Um, and by the time she got home, you know, she was with her family, you know, but, but I think also like when we, when we, and even then, then she was with Robert, you know, like there wasn't, there was no moment where their separation wasn't at the forefront of her day. Um, and so I, 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 that was where my point of focus was, you know? And then I think that there were moments also, like with with um, with her sons, uh, who are, you know, each of them incredibly focused and determined and have really clear ideas of what they want to do in the world. Um, and that being such a, I think, strong reflection of who Fox is, of who Miss Peggy is, of who Robert is, of how the family, um, again, worked together to resist these systematic um, ways of taking one's individuality and spirit from them, one's focus from them, um, and, and their own form of resistance, their own way of sort of, um, I think, responding to the system in their own unique way. Um, all of that, I, I think trying to reinforce that and making that as clear as possible was ultimately what informed where I wanted to be and, and when I wanted to be there and how we wanted to be there. I apologize if this is making a connection that's not there. I mean, obviously there's a connection because you made the film, um, America, which is an incredible short that was, I guess what I'm thinking here, was it Sundance the year before time? Is that what, is that, is that about right? I think. Yeah. yeah okay. So um, very different film, but these, it, 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 there's a meditation on images, the pre presentations of, of, of black images and of story in a, in a very, um, in a different context and not a, not as much of a personal individual. You're, you know, you're speaking right now about Fox and resistance. I, I'm curious though, um, because there's so many ideas about the presentations of stories and of, of, of black people and how they're represented on film. And that's a, that's almost more of an intellectual art exercise is this is more of, I think, a, an emotional, I don't mean to peg your work one way or the other. But I'm curious some of those ideas that are in America and what I, you were going through. I think you're probably putting that film together while you're filming time or there's probably some some, some kind of crossover there. But I'm, it's just engaging in your ideas in America. I couldn't help but think about how that was informing time and, and some of those concepts there. Yeah, I mean, 
so America was inspired by the MoMA's discovery of this film, 1913 film starring Burt Williams and um, Odessa Warren Gray. It was made in 1913. Uh, the museum thinks it's the, it's the, the first uh, feature-length film with an all-black cast and integrated production team, which was really relevant because, you know, 1913, that's just several years before Plessy versus Ferguson, several years, which was in 1896. That same year in 1896, uh, the modern day projector was invented. So film projector. So technology is bringing people together for the first time. And then we also are seeing the beginnings of Jim Crow. So it was really relevant that you saw this sort of integrated effort that was um, in support of a black vision, which was Burt's vision. And part of what I found so inspiring about watching that source material was that was several things. One is that even though Bert is wearing blackface, which was required, you know, at that time, nobody else in the film uh, is is presented that way. I mean, there's two characters that are sort of these like town drunkards, but you understand them not as being a definition of a race, but as their own sort of caricature within the context of normalcy, which is very rare to be able to see during that time period. Um, and when you think about uh, the sort of the strategy like how how does one allow for that to happen make that happen um, from a strategic standpoint from a business standpoint it took a lot of power you know that bird had um and then i think even within his own performance there's so much nuance that's there you really see him and understand him as a character and again not as a representation of his race um and so when I started making that film, it was um, it was Obama was still president when I was finishing the film. And when the film came out, Trump had become president. And so the, the, the parameters and the definitions with which I was working with became all the more critical to prove the things that I was seeing. Um, and that, I think, is where it also starts to get really interesting is how do you work with an archive um, which appears to be fixed, which is something that you don't have control over, that you didn't shoot, that is um, within certain confines of a time period and way of thinking that you have no control over. And then how do you flip it on its head? And how do you reveal elements of it in a modern context that you know to be true, um, but that are less visible maybe even at 17 frames a second? Um, and so that was so much of what I was working through with America, uh, was to prove these things that, that, um, that were maybe less discernible and to also think about performance as a form of both oppression and resistance and to not take that for granted, particularly in the character of Bert and in the making and production of that film. And I think those themes certainly transition uh, into time. You know, when we think about the parole board, when we think about the pressure of presentation of this idea of black exceptionalism as being the only way for you to move forward and to receive justice um, and the exceptionalism that we see in the family. Right. Um, all of those all of those themes, I think, certainly are there. And it, it's it's an American theme. Mm. I, I, maybe this is a good place to transition um, because I think there's this is some of the things that I saw as a connection is that um, so you, you film you're filming with Fox I think at a certain point you I, like every documentarian you kind of have to make a decision of when you're going to stop and start editing I'm sure that's a financial as well as a sanity uh, decision and in my understanding is or actually it's not my understanding I think I've heard you say this uh, as you're about to say bye I'm going to go edit for a little bit she hands you what <laughs> she hands me this amazing little black bag of 
uh, like tons of mini DV tapes. And it's, yeah, it's a hundred hours of her own personal archive and the family's archive. Um, and it completely exploded the whole concept of what we were doing and what we were making. Um, obviously the universe had a higher plan, <laughs> you know, but you fought it for a little bit, right? You were like, okay, you right. You were just like, I'm going to, Oh, I got more stuff for the short. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was so adamant. I, for some, I don't know. And I don't know what, what that's about. I think it was maybe to be, if I'm really being honest, I think it was, and it's funny. I when I always say, if I'm being honest, my dad always says, what else would you be? But I, um, I think I was sort of inherently turned off by the fascination and sort of fetishizing of the feature length film, right. you know, that it's going to be more important and bigger if it's longer, you know, and that was my own journey of Garrett being stubborn and needing to get over that, you know, <laughs> um, like you just had said quite a bit in 27 minutes with America. And it was like, kind of like, I, did you really want a 28 minute there? <laughs> was it- well, I, was just, I guess it's because, you know, you're thinking about what you're saying and, and that first and foremost is what should take precedent versus how, how long it's going to take you to say it and how well you're going to do it within that time period, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, and, and it wasn't until I think Gabe Rhodes and I, you know, the film's editor, were really able to watch through the footage and find a rationale that truly resonated in terms of the content of the material and what it was going to say with what we had shot that I think it became very clear and more comfortable to think of it as a feature, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and there were so many different entry points and ways in which um, we could do that, you know, which really expanded my way of thinking Um Extended, expanded, I think, my own practice as a filmmaker um, because the challenges that were set forth were so, there were so many, you know, and, and um, I think the first one, you know, even though I know this sounds really superficial, but, but was to tackle the superficial elements of what it means to create a sort of mixed media project, you know, um, that I had this sort of slick, really specific visual aesthetic that I was working within and how do I find a way to incorporate the materiality and the textures of um, footage that was shot in the nineties on mini DV tape. That was also beautiful, but how do we bring those two things together? Um, And, and I think I leaned more towards these visual connections that were being made, like, you know, my camera being, you know, profiled to Fox quite a bit in her office. And then, in the 90s, you know, 20 years before, Fox also putting her camera in exactly the same position, you know, and and wanting to wanting to make those visual connections throughout the film. Um, and, and I think Gabe Rhodes, you know, he really pushed me as a filmmaker to think also not just in terms of we can't just rely that the images are going to evoke emotion and clarity. We also need to to think about where are the where are the emotional beats in the story and how are we making connections between um uh, between the story, the present story, and and the past, you know? And I think the way in which we were able to do that was to lean into this idea of we are going to talk about incarceration from the family's point of view in a way that is completely rooted in the mythology of love because love is timeless, love has no chronology, and if we can keep ourselves there, then we can go forward and backwards all at the same time without a problem. And it would have been impossible without the archive. 
We're going to take a short break here to remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by Boy State. This Apple original film is a political coming-of-age story that explores the heart of American democracy through an annual rite of passage in which a thousand teenage boys from across Texas come together to build a representative government from the ground up. And, and that's as crazy as it sounds. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And for your consideration, best documentary feature, uh, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. And now back to my conversation with Garrett Bradley. One of the things that becomes obvious in the juxtaposition of the DV archive and the present day footage is how Fox has evolved into this um, almost an incredible activist. I'm assuming in reshaping this into a feature that that arc of Fox herself becomes uh, to some degree a structuring device. No. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we see with the archive allows us to see the evolution and the revolution within her as an individual. Um, and it kind of addresses one of the great challenges that I, I feel I, I'm facing as a filmmaker, which is how does one really show the totality uh, in the context of documentary filmmaking of an individual? Like we are 360 degree beings, you know? We are not just the screen. We're not just the, the second dimension. How do we show the history and the experience that one uh, indoors that makes them the person that we are when we meet them without being reductive it's it's a huge challenge it is maybe the challenge to a certain extent um, and so the archive offered that the archive li- in, in its most literal sense offered that in a way that I never could have done you know because often I think that the, the- the choice that filmmakers have, right, when they're piecing together these individual narratives is, is like if you use one piece of exposition, if you use one piece of backstory it, it to imply an A to B, it, it you know, it, it instantly becomes this kind of like simplified journey of this happened and that happened. And I think when I when I see this footage and I see it, you just see her present, it's like you don't need the that story beat almost right it's 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 the juxtaposition it's a juxtaposition and it also i think speaks to the fact that um the non-literal also informs who we are and Mm -hmm. is deeply meaningful it's just as meaningful as as something you know that 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 abstract ways of that we that we are abstract to a certain Mm -hmm. extent you know and i think that 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 is like also fundamentally what the film is trying to do is that it's um it is it, it, it's putting faith in this idea that we can get to we can get to the same place of creating change in the world through personal experience through something that is not necessarily literal or chron- chronological mm-hmm. that love is something that's abstract that um that the human experience and a family's personal experience can say the same thing to a certain extent as numbers, you know, Mm -hmm. as statistics, which are equally as important, but I think need to happen in tandem with the things that are, that are, um, more ephemeral. Did you have the name time from the start? Or is that something that came in? Because it seems as if one thing that, in addition to finding a way of how to structure this now with the back and forth, it also feels that um, you're exploring kind of on a philosophical 
way these these larger concepts of time of love and it feels like that had in the edit room you just talked about this poetic sense in a and a, a way to catch that ephemeral it feels as if i'm sure it wasn't always easy but it feels like that became that thematic idea became a part of the edit to a certain degree and not and and, and what's amazing i also think about this and i should just comment is that while you're doing structure and while you're doing story, you can have these kind of ephemeral, kind of aesthetic, poetic ideas in the, in the edit. Yeah, totally. Um, it was important to me. I mean, no, I mean, first of all, no, fi- titling films is probably the hardest part. One of the hardest. I can't believe time had never been done before. I can't believe that time, <laughs> time isn't like every title, but it's never been the title. That blows my mind. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I have a really hard time with it. I mean, the thing, the thing that's interesting about, and I think speaks to why the sort of the, the family's meditations on the word were also really important to include, was that like in my mind, time doesn't actually elicit an image in any kind of way. Um, it, it's sort of ghostly in that sense, and yet there's so many different ways of thinking about it, and. You know, someone had asked me earlier, like, well, what does time mean to you? Like, how do you think about it? And when I really had to think about it, it was, you know, I, I was thinking about time as 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 a tool for oppression, as uh, as an example of, you know, of colonialization, the clock, right? Being late, being on time, capitalism. Um, it's something I'm constantly avoiding, <laughs> it, but it's the thing that shapes our lives. You know, um, and so and so time, I think the openness of it also allows for everybody to be included in it, you know, um, and it was really important to me that that the family also be able to to speak to it, to its broadness. I will I will add, I will preface this question by saying I think this film is remarkably edited. It's one of the best edited films I've seen in quite some time. Um, but I am also guessing that a lot of the choices that you had to make, not only some of these uh, um, artistic choices, but also these structural choices, and suddenly now how to tell her story and her family story, um, I have to imagine that that is something that did not come natural. That was a lot of banging your head against a wall, like try 300 different things before you find the one, because there's an element here of like the choices that you did make are so simple and perfect and it's my experience that to get there, it takes a lot of imperfect, right? No, it was like so easy, actually. No, I'm just kidding. No, it was so hard. It was so hard, man. It was it was so hard. And I mean, Gabe and I were never, we never even cut in the same space. I mean, like pre-COVID, we were, I was living in another country. He was in New York. Uh, you know, so there was, there were so many so many challenges to to it but i think that um, were you working on different sections or were you sending things no, back and but forth just se- sending things back and forth but you know even just you know not being able to sit in a room with somebody i think everybody always says like oh well you get so much more accomplished when you're just in a room with somebody and it's true um but i also kind of think that we were able to prove to ourselves that like you can get it done not not doing it that way you know mm-hmm. which i think now we're all we're all forced to have to experience um so yeah i mean i think that i think that once we were able to the two two things to say about it one is that as a 
as a filmmaker, as somebody who had always cut my own work up until this point and was working with an editor for the first time, I I really had hit sort of a glass ceiling and I knew that I needed to open up the collaborative process. Gabe um, has an incredible way of really simplifying and distilling things in this incredibly profound way, in a way that is actually quite literal, but that, and we've used the word evoke quite a bit, but that evokes the abstract, evokes the things that would be almost impossible um, to try to explain in a literal sense, which is a, which is a, seems contradictory, but, but works somehow. And I think, you know, part of the initial challenge was that I was constantly leaning towards image making how can we focus on the visual connections between the archive and the contemporary footage right how can we create poetry in that way and he really forced me to kind of let go of that to let go of the tone to let go of the feel and the aesthetics of it and just really buckle in on the the narrative structure the emotional structure you know in my mind i'm always like well images create emotion and that's that's how we do it. And he's like, yeah, but you can actually do both, you know, together, which I know sounds really simple. And I'm just simple minded, I guess, in that way. Um, and I think where we, where we actually, where we started to kind of create true fluidity and, and I think we're, we're really on track was when we decided to just fully lean into love, like fully lean into the fact that this is a meditation on love, this is a meditation on unity, and that those things are inherently political, those things are inherent forms of resistance, and we can jump around then at any point in time because we are rooted in those sort of basic principles. Mm-hmm. And where where in this process did the music of this wonderful Ethiopian musician who is still alive, I believe, right? She's like in her late nineties. I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna butcher her name, so I'm not going to try to, to, to say it, um, but uh, maybe you can. But where in the process did that come into this? Because it, it embodies, I mean, well, we can talk about it, but I, I have to imagine that became a huge element of, of accomplishing all of this. Yeah, well, she goes by Emma Hoy, which okay. is, uh, refers to none. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I came across her music actually just through like a YouTube algorithm thing. I was, I had all of these 1970s Ethiopian playlists on my YouTube account and Amahoy's music, this album from 1963 popped up and I immediately fell in love with it um, and felt really ignorant that I hadn't known about her music. I mean, I I knew all the, then I met all these people who were like, oh yeah, you didn't know? Like, she's incredible. She's a genius. And um, and there was something, you know, I think that there's a, there's a level of um, perpetual moving forward that, that we have in her music, um, but that there's also a lot of nuance and a lot of detail and a lot of a blending of melody and genre within that, that I felt oddly spoke very well to New Orleans, that spoke to the story itself. Some of the tracks of the songs were literally a mother's complaint or um, a young girl's complaint, um, you know, uh, homesickness, the wanderer, um, and and so that that felt almost like a like a spiritual calling to a certain extent. And then when I started to read about Emma Hoy um, and discovered that she was she came from a wealthy family in Ethiopia and then 
was a prisoner of war and was trained in Western classical music, but decided to leave that as a, as a calling and become a nun uh, and continue music and moved back to Ethiopia to essentially kind of create her own genre of music. And this one album that was recorded was, was for the purpose of raising money for an orphanage. I just loved the idea of being able to bring these two women together, you mm-hmm. know, in time and space. And it's interesting because um, the melody and the tone works so well for somber moments, for kind of ephemeral time yeah. flashback. Flashback's the wrong word, but moments. It works for sometimes even just these. Uh, well, I mean, I think the opening of the film's a good example. Um, the spirit of a family in a, in a very effervescent sense and it's amazing because it's like that music it, it's i know it's different tracks and whatnot but there's there's something that is in her music that is that can go in all those different tracks being used in all those different ways and take on almost different meaning based on what you're doing with the picture yeah exactly exactly and that's where it's like i can't even offer like a deep thought around it it was Mm. just one of those things where we're like fuck this just works man like this is just so it's like meant to be you know it just felt so so lucky and beautiful and her foundation i mean we really owe a lot to her foundation for allowing us Mm. to to use the album this is an aside it won't be in the podcast the other gentleman on here par who's going to help me edit this has been listening to her for years and he watched time last night and he was heartbroken he's like i've always wanted to use her music in movies (laughs) (laughs) and she's like this woman did it beautifully i can't believe it (laughs) he's like he was just he was like she's but he was you know he was it it just it's been a lot to him spiritually as well um so um sound we talked a you talked a little bit about cars and the kind of thematic ideas of cars it feels as if going back to almost an original intention and even before the dv footage it feels like whatever some of those ideas were with cars visually also it plays a role in the sound design no absolutely yeah so zach howard who i've worked with um gosh on my last three or four films um he you know we have a really good kind of shorthand and, and we talked a lot about, yeah, how kind of movement and cars were, were such a huge theme in the film. And so a lot of the time we're using highway sounds and car sounds, even when you're not seeing cars, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not on the highway. Um, and it was just, a, to me, it was just, a, how can we kind of blend blend space? You know, um, I think I think that the sonic landscape of a film is is just as important as the visuals it's just as important as the camera work mm-hmm. um and i to me it's sort of like a it's such a joy to start to to jump into that and we we try to work with sound as early as possible in the cutting process i mean i don't i don't wait till the end of the film i mean i think it's really important for me just to know what's working to try to, to start working through that as early as you can and it feels like it, whatever those instincts were visually also in terms of the car it seems as if that is something that you were when you were making those choices of where to film her and what to focus on, it feels as if not only the fact that she's in the car dealership, but you kind of always saw cars as being how you were going to capture her to a, and the family to a certain degree, right? Yeah, I mean, because cars, I mean, cars were both the thing that got them in the predicament that they were in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also uh, a form of income to a certain extent, a form of freedom. There are all these sort of contradictory roles in which cars and transportation I think play in the family's life um, and to be able to bring that into sort of every element of the film I think 
felt really important. I'm going to get a little filmmaking nerdy with you for a second because I'm fascinated by it. Um, can we talk a little bit about your use of zooms and the zoom lens? Because it feels to me, uh, well, I know, you know what? I have my own thing. I, I'm curious though, because it's like, not only are these frames very specific, but it feels as if that's something, something about that lens feels a lot, has a lot to do with your framing and your process to a certain degree now. Yeah. I mean, I, I started off as a, as a photo as a concert photographer, that's um, where I kind of like those were my first my first jobs that I would get that were paid that involved me in a camera <laughs> and and um and so I'm I have a really specific idea always and vision for what I'm shooting how I want to shoot it and I you know there were three cinematographers on this film. Um, uh, Zach Manuel and Justin Zweifek in Nissa East and Bron Moy who uh, who was also on board briefly so I guess you know four um, and you know I'm usually right next to the camera I'm usually placing it you know and a lot of the time it's myself and the cinematographer just working really closely together um, and I mean sometimes I'll, I'll shot list actual you know frames in the same way that you would a narrative film again based on my knowledge of where we're going to be that day how long we're going to be there and really letting things kind of unfold in front of the camera and i i mean for me the, the zoom is, is actually a really practical way of trying to mimic our own eyes and and the way in which we move with my first feature narrative feature below dreams um i was trying to do that and I, everything was handheld, you know? And for me, that was like, yeah, how can I, how can I blur the line as much as possible between our bodies and our minds and the film itself? How can I make it feel as though when I'm watching someone, how can I make it feel as though the viewer is just using their own eyes in space, that, that, that I'm not in between the two of them? Um, and I, when I started working with Zooms, it was like such a, it was a more controlled version of what I was trying to do with the handheld because and what it did was it offered both context and specificity within a single frame, you know, that we can, which is how we actually live in the world, that we understand the room that we're in, but then we start to concentrate in on one specific thing. And so the Zoom is a great way, and I think it's a great way to, to offer both of those things. And, and it, I think it's really important when you're not only working in documentary filmmaking, but when you're also, um, you know, dealing with issues that, that need context. And there's something about, the how tight we are on the frame of them and and in this and there's also something about the specificity of how we're you're letting us see them um it and i don't know if that's something that comes it sounds like you shot list but it feels like somebody maybe i well, if you are standing next to the camera operator i could almost one almost sees a little bit more a little bit more a little bit like just keep and it feels like this movie was one where you just come on to keep getting a little little tighter a little tighter right oh certainly i mean i i I I want other people, you know, the, the way in which people are presented in the film are the way in which I see them, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that's also why, you know, so, some cinematographers would, would hate working with me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, because I'm not really, you know, I, I'm not interested in, like, interpreting who people are through the lens of this aesthetic that I've developed in a film, mm -hmm. you know? I I honor and respect people and I see the inner child in everybody, you know? 
um, the beauty that exists really in everybody. And I want the lens to show that. I want other people to see that. And so it requires um, specificity. It requires saying, this is how I want it to look. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, yeah. And some people would be like, no fucking way. Am I going to just let you like control the Zoom and like, (laughs) you know, no. (laughs) But it's important to me. I also think that I, when I think about working with the Zoom, there's a very fine line between feeling voyeuristic, right, or predatory, yeah, um, versus being curious, uh, or and, and maybe not even curious, I should say, but um, focused, you know, and and that's something I can't necessarily describe about how to do that, or you know, but I think it's really important, and it's something that sort of we're in constant communication about, and when I when I sense that it's feeling like that then we we reorient ourselves and were you always doing black and white for this even before you got the dv footage or is that yeah we we had i mean i had always conceived of it as being black and white just because alone was in black and white and again i was like how can i always make sure that these films exist together as sister films and then when we got the archive and the archive was in color and it was in beautiful color we did try gabe and i did try making the film color but it just it felt more like you were hopping from one stone to the next instead of a fluid river you know and we needed it to feel uh we needed there to be visual linearity so that we could jump around more and and we could feel as though we were always kind of in the present which is which is how we experience memory you know is that it's always in the present um you know i would like to congratulate you on one of the first uh, good drone shots I've seen in a nonfiction film, and there's been a lot of uh, of poor ones. I'm curious, and I, you seem to be a student of nonfiction filmmaking. I'm sure you've seen. Was it was it just this? You needed that shot of the prisons, or was there a little bit like, uh, let's see how we could actually use this tool? And, and- I'm I'm actually kind of obsessed with drones, and I I'm really excited to try to like I just I'm I want to try to spend a week just like messing with them and doing all sorts of shit that you can't do with a regular camera <laughs> and like probably make a lot of really bad stuff. Um, I mean, the reason why that shot was so important for the film was, and it really feeds into, I think, understanding this current moment, but, um, you know, Robert was always really intimately involved in the process of the film as we were making it. And that's something that was really important to me, that even though he wasn't physically present, he still had real agency in the decisions we were making and the direction that was being taken with the film. Um, and so I was in communication with him through email, through phone. I would I went a, a few times to visitation with the family um, and certainly Fox you know, having her trust and us working so closely together really helped facilitate Robert's trust clearly of the process. Um, and and I think, and I know I'm sort of going off here for a second, but I think also that even though he wasn't physically present, I do feel his presence in every frame of the film, you know, and I think that that is a testament to the family's ability to stay united, you know, despite, again, sort of systematic separation of black families in, in the country. Um, but so because of that, and even even though I think, thankfully, those things were maintained, part of the problem in our country is that we have such little visual evidence for 2.3 million people being incarcerated. We literally, I think most of us can't actually fathom the optics of what that means and looks like. And that's where there's so much power in it. That's why people are... Um, 
not on the streets in utter rage because the majority of us are affected by it, right? If you think about the fact that there has to be at least double or triple the number of 2.3 million people who are affected by it, that's a majority of our country. Um, so the fact that, you know, this system is it hasn't been completely torn, torn down at this point is because it's been made invisible. It's because there is this seemingly invisible population that exists. Um, and in many cases, the only evidence, you know, of what's going on is in the family, is in those that are serving time on the outside. So how to, to, to prove the markings of erasure was was also part of the challenge in making the film. And it's also, I think, the call to action for artists and filmmakers in this current moment to create more visual, to, to really offer a visualization of what's happening. Um, so the drone shot was so crucial. And I have to say that I even, I do feel a bit of failure even, and I appreciate that you thought it was done tastefully and well, but I still feel that, you know, Angola, which is where he was incarcerated, Robert was incarcerated for 21 years, Angola State Prison was made up of multiple plantations that were named, you know, and then consolidated into a single plantation and was named after the people that were enslaved and brought from the country uh, of Angola uh, to America and then turned into a prison. And it's 18,000 acres of land. um, And we only captured a fraction of that. Uh, So even in our ability to try to, to, to prove what's happening, I, I still think we, we were unable to fully. I apologize if I'm repeating that. Did I say that already earlier? No, I may have. No, no, no. Um, last one, and everybody, this is going to be the last question, and if you haven't seen the movie, which I think you probably have if you're listening to this, but if you haven't, you can turn off and come back um, after you have seen it. Uh, you know, it's interesting talking about this in context of what you just said. My, I'm guessing, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Robert eventually getting out was something that came during the edit process, right? Like you're, you and Gabe are pretty far along at this point. I'm wondering, um, you know, it's interesting because it feels as if to me in watching the film, while this ending is incredibly powerful and just, and, and just so beautiful, I, I imagine that to a certain degree, the structure of this film and where it was headed was going there without that end. It just obviously ends on a different poetic note um, obviously, this is a great note. It's a beautiful note. But I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that um, and that idea, because I don't think you were sitting there waiting and this is this was going to be my end, right? Yeah, absolutely not. And and I think that it would have been to a certain extent kind of unethical to expect any kind of specific outcome uh, in general when you're making documentaries, but, but especially uh, in this context. So the focus really again, was to sort of, how do we, how do we have people walk away and understand how the system entangles itself in every single part of your life that you can't separate yourself from it? And how do we understand um, time as a weapon, um, regardless of where you stand politically, um, regardless of where you live, regardless of who you feel you are? um, How can we think about intimacy as a right and not a privilege um and how can we really how can we really feel the effects of 2.3 million people missing that was bottom line what we were working towards and i think you know obviously we were incredibly grateful to be able to have the ending that we had and i was 
I was hoping for that, frankly, regardless of whether or not it was going to be in the film. Um, but we we were really fortunate to be in the process that we were in when the, the timing the timing worked. It's interesting because the film, and I think you just said more beautifully than I could ever think about, was that idea of his presence and that feeling of him there. And it's very interesting in how you present him, but also just even seeing him and seeing him in these places based on what we experienced because there feels like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, it, there's there's something about his presence and the way that he has been present and then we see him, it it almost feels like, I don't know how to say it, but it's, it's it, the, and maybe it comes down to the way you shot it or edited it, but that presentation of Robert suddenly being back, it seems as if you gave it a certain presentation, a certain way of how we were experiencing it. And I think it's informed by this idea that he he's kind of in some sense been there, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you want to, for us, it was important that we we speak to the issue of invisibility without reinforcing, we speak to the issue of invisibility without reinforcing the issues around it, you know, without, without making him invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think at the end of the film, it was important not only to see him, but also to hear him, you know, um, and to allow him to have space to speak. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I think there's a whole other film about what happens after that. But, you know, I, I, as a filmmaker, it felt like the family was successful in their pursuit of bringing him home. Um, and, and to let that be a win, you know, I think Robert is still on parole for the next 40 years of his life, right? You make one mistake in the state of Louisiana and they have you for life. Um, and I don't think needing to explain that from a legislative point of view is something that the film was making room for. It was something that I think I'm hoping people understand in terms of how they feel. And and that seems to be a big part for you is, is that the information, the reality, it's, that's not, you're not undermining the, the, the facts and the figures, but it feels as if it's like you want this to be that artistic, poetic, emotional companion to that, right? And that's what, that's the role here because there's only so much information, you know, information might be better off in a, a different form. Like the, you know, the, 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 it's like how the bureaucracy feels rather than the, the logistics of it. And that's the filmmaking part. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, I believe really strongly that we need to have both. You know? oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, it's not even I think that I was so much looking to make something inherently poetic or artistic. I think I just was really invested in the idea of effects living in tandem with facts. Yeah. You know, as the a emotion. way of sort of con- the emotion. Exactly. Yeah. And then having a more holistic understanding of where we're at. Well, Mission Accomplished. It is a gorgeous, beautiful, powerful film. I, I watched it again this morning, and it's it just washes over you, and and um, in the best way. And uh, Thank you, Chris. it's uh, it's a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody sees it many times. And Thank so, you, man. That means so much. I appreciate your time. By the time this is out, by the way, this will be on Prime. So all of you can go see this. I know that's sometimes a problem with these documentaries, but by the time you hear this or you watch the video, it'll be it'll be on Prime. So thank you. Thank you, Garrett. Be safe.